Tonight's scripture reading is from Romans 6, verses 1 through 14. And if you don't have a Bible, there should be one there in front of you. You can use that tonight and take it home if you'd like. Romans 6, verses 1 through 14. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can he who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ Jesus was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like this, like his. We know that your old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, to, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but pre- present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. This is the word of the Lord. Hey guys. Oh, it's hot. How do you follow James Lapine? It's like following James Earl Jones. Um, My name's Dan. I'm one of the pastors here at Park Church, and uh, I'm really excited to be here with you guys and open up the word and hopefully learn from it with you all. Um... Before I get into Romans 6, though, I want to uh, mention what, who was it, Neil mentioned earlier during announcements, is that the Connect group, or Group Connect, I'm sorry, next Sunday after each service, this is a way to get involved in the gospel community. Um, Our small groups, our gospel communities, are a huge part of our church. Um, They're they're one of the main ways we connect with other people, we live in community, we fight sin together. And so I want to encourage you guys, if you're not in a group, that's a great place to, to meet some leaders and get involved in a group. So it's next Sunday after each service. Group Connect will be downstairs. I would encourage you guys, if you're not in a group, to, to check it out and find a group. So let me pray for us, and then we'll jump into Romans 6. Lord, it's a, a humbling thing to, to presume to open up your Bible and teach from it. And Lord, so we ask you, I ask you to be here working in this place, speaking through me, opening our eyes, opening our ears to the truth that you would have for us from Romans 6. Um, Lord, we need you, and we need you to change us as people. Um, we're thankful that you've given us your word. Lord, we ask you to speak through it tonight. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I've been married for almost eight years now. Eight long, great years. Um, to my wife, Megan, who's right there. 
And uh, I learned early on in my marriage that, that both the, the best and the worst parts about marriage are the same thing. Um, the fact that we're, we're stuck together, that for as long as we live, um, we're together. And this is comforting, yet it's really hard at times because there are times that you don't like each other. Um, but we were united when we got married. I believe that when Genesis 2 tells me that when I married Megan, that we were united and became one flesh. I believe that to be a true reality, not just a metaphor, uh, not just kind of sentimentality, but in the truest sense, I believe that that is a true reality of, of myself and Megan, that we are united, that we are one, and that even practically that plays itself out, that my sin affects her, her sin affects me, the decisions that I make, the things that I think, um, the things that I believe affect her, and vice versa, that we are that we're united. Romans 6 is all about our union, the believer's union with Jesus and the implications of that union. So the, this covenant of marriage, the union that I experienced with my wife, is just kind of a reflection, kind of a dim shadow of this union that the believer has with Jesus and the implications of that, that we are united with him in such a way that his crucifixion becomes our crucifixion that his death is our death, that his burial is our burial, uh, that his resurrection is our resurrection, that his defeat of sin and death is our defeat of sin and death, that we who trust in Christ are united with him. Before I jump too deep into Romans 6, so I want to back up and kind of look at the context, look at Romans chapter, chapters 1 through 5, which give us the foundation for what we're going to look at in chapter 6. So, Romans 1 through 5, I would say, gives the clearest picture, the clearest depiction of our state, man's state of rebellion against God and God's response to that. So he starts, Paul starts in Romans 1 with God creating us, revealing himself, making himself known to us. Yet we all turn aside, we all refuse to worship him, refuse to acknowledge him as God. And Paul makes sure that, that everybody's included in this. He talks about um, the immoral person, the moral person, the religious person, and makes, makes it very clear that there's no one who's righteous. He actually says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. And then he tells us that God's wrath is revealed against mankind. And so we see a picture here in Romans of God's wrath. And in Romans, the way it's described isn't um, kind of this God in heaven casting, you know, throwing fireballs at us or casting us into hell, but it's, it's him looking at us and saying, if you refuse to worship me, if you refuse to worship to come to the, the fountains of living water and you insist on playing in these mud puddles over here, I'll go, I'll go ahead and let you do that. I'm going to let you kind of follow your own desires. I'll give you the desires of your hearts and we'll see how that goes. And it goes terribly wrong. We see that it leads to all kinds of sin and ultimately death. Then in chapter 5, well, so Paul paints this, excuse me, this, this bleak picture of humanity. So this, this sad picture, this hopeless picture of us, of humanity, of you and me, in opposition to God, in opposition to the God who created us. Um, and his, his wrath is being revealed. And so it's kind of a sad place if you're reading through Romans. Um, you get, you know, through chapter, chapters 1 and 2, and you're kind of bummed out. But then Paul, and I think God through Paul, hits us with two of the most hopeful um, beautiful words in all of Scripture. In chapter 3, verse 21, he says, But now. So he's painted this hopeless picture here. 
but basically is saying this, this isn't the whole picture. It's true. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. So in other words, a way to become righteous before God, a way to become right before him, has now come, has been manifested outside of the law, outside of us trying to attain, attain it by our own works, our own deeds, our own effort. So 3.21 and 22 says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. So through Jesus, through faith in him, we've been justified before God, apart from the law, apart from our works, apart from anything we could have done. And so today I'm going to talk about justification and sanctification, two kind of big words that we throw around a lot, or some people do. Um, but I want to make sure that we know what we're talking about when I use these terms. So justification, this is this idea that through faith in Jesus, through our union with him, we take on his righteousness and that we're justified before God. It's, it's a legal term. Basically, I don't know if you've heard Brian maybe to describe this as a kind of a courtroom setting of a judge declaring you innocent, declaring you righteous. And so our guilt is wiped away, our rebellion is forgiven, um, and we can stand before God with confidence, without fear. And this is something that once a person is justified, you can't go backwards in that. Paul says that I'm for, sure, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So once a person is justified, once God has set his love on them, uh, they can't be unjustified. There's no going backwards in this. This is a gift from God. It's not based on anything we've done or will do. It's not based on our merit, our works, our lack of sin, uh, how well we loved our friends or our neighbors, how well we loved or served the poor, how much money we've given away. Um, It doesn't have to do with how we haven't slept with our girlfriend or haven't done the wrong drugs or haven't done or have done anything. It has to do with Jesus' righteousness and not our own, by nothing that we could have done or ever could do. And then Paul ends chapter 5 by talking about how the law came to increase the trespass. So if you're wondering why, why, why there even is a law if we're not saved by it, Paul tells us that it came into, to increase the trespass. So in other words, it came to make us more aware of our sin, to put our sin kind of right in front of us, to show us that there was a standard that we could never attain to, and hopefully to show us that we needed something or someone to save us, that we couldn't save ourselves. So chapter 5, verse 20, Paul says, Now the law, the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. I love this idea that God's grace abounds over sin. So no matter what you've done, what you will do, God's grace is bigger. In the song that, that we sang a couple minutes ago, Grace That Is Greater Than My Sin, love that song. God's grace abounds over our sin, abounds over all of your sin. Uh, there's no one in the world that has any dark secrets or any past sin that God's grace can't abound over. And so, believing this, if you believe this, I think most Christians would say they believe this if they were taking a, you know, a Christian test. They might say, how do you, if you asked how, how are you saved, they would say by God's grace. Um, but do you really believe that there's nothing that you could have done to be saved? There's nothing that you could have done to earn even one little bit of God's grace. 
If you do believe that, though, the natural question would be, and the question that Paul is addressing in chapter 6, is if that's true, if we're saved by grace, not of our own doing, then why should we change how we live? Why should we fight sin? Fighting sin is hard. It's hard work. And the way Paul puts it is, should we continue in sin, that grace may abound. So if God's grace is going to abound over our sin, should we just continue in sin? Should we sin even more so we'll see more of God's grace? So Paul asks this question and answers it in the first two verses here, and then he'll go on to kind of defend his answer. So his answer to this question is by no means. And from what I've read, I don't know Greek, so I don't presume to uh, be able to, you know, interpret Greek like, like Brian often does. But this, even this term, by no means, this translation I've heard is a fairly soft, kind of nice translation that, you know, our, our New Testament scholars don't want don't to put curse words in our Bible. But from what I've heard, this is a very strong, like the strongest language that Paul uses in the New Testament, that he's angry here. And I won't, I won't try to use these words or make them up, but you can just imagine what he's saying. So imagine a very strong, you know, cuss word, insert it there. Paul's saying, by no means, heck no, hell no. How can we who died to sin still live in it? I can't really get angry, I'm sorry. <laughs> if, it were, if I were Brian, he would be like throwing podiums and things. But just imagine someone really angry. By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So this is both kind of a logical question that Paul knows. Paul knows that people are going to go there. He knows that our minds are going to go there. Yet he's going to use the next few verses to explain to us just how ridiculous this, this idea is, that we would continue in sin that grace may abound. Last Sunday, here at Park Church, we had the opportunity to baptize um, two believers, two new believers, right out front there. And uh, baptism, when we do baptisms here, it's, it's really my favorite thing we do as a church. It's, a, it's an incredible, it's a really fun experience if you guys haven't been to one. And I love baptism because it's this picture, and Paul is using this, Paul is telling us this. It's a picture of what happens to a person when they believe in Jesus, when they are united with him. And so, if you were here, we had a big trough out front full of really warm water, thanks to one of our interns, Jarek, it was like a hot tub water. We had to throw ice in it because it was too hot, actually. But, um, but you see this picture, this visual picture of someone being lowered into the water, representing their union with Jesus in his death and in his burial. So they go completely under the water, and then they're raised up out of the water, reflecting the, their union with Jesus in his resurrection and his defeat of sin. And as they're raised up, they're raised up as a, new, as a new person, as a new man or a new woman. And again, I believe this to be a true reality. I think the Bible teaches this. Paul is teaching that this is true. It's not just a metaphor. But that person that was baptized, um, maybe not right then when, when they were baptized, but representing what happened to them when they began to trust in Jesus, they died to themselves. They actually died. And they were resurrected with Jesus as a new man or a new woman to live a new life. So this is basically Paul's argument for why we can't continue in sin. To remember your baptism, remember what happened when you were united with Jesus. That you died to sin, we can no longer live in it. You were resurrected to live a new life. So for the first five chapters here of Romans, Paul's built this case for justification based on our union with Jesus. And then in chapter 6, we learn that our union with Jesus not only provides the foundation for our justification, but also the foundation for our sanctification, which is, again, another 
big word I'm going to use. But sanctification just basically means our practically becoming holy. Um, the way by which God is making us more like Jesus. And so, justification, this idea that we are practic- or that we are positionally perfect in God's eyes, right? There's nothing that you can add to that. There's no way you can become more justified. Once you're justified, you, are, you take on the righteousness of Jesus, which is perfect. Sanctification is an ongoing process. It's the day-to-day living out of the Christian life of God working in us to make us more like his son. Chapter 6, verse 6 says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So throughout chapter 6, two realms are being held up by Paul. The realm of sin and death founded by Adam that we all find ourselves in and the realm of righteousness and life that's brought about um, by Jesus and his righteousness. So Paul kind of likes to create these, these dividing lines, create humanity, kind of divide us into two different camps. And he says the, the believer in Jesus has been transferred from this realm of sin and death to the realm of righteousness and life. And he makes it clear that this, this transfer, this new kind of status of justified brings with it um, influence and power that has to change how we live practically. And he also kind of talks about this in, in terms of realm transfer, I think, to, to show us how crazy is the idea that we could go back and live in sin that grace may abound, that we've died to that. We've been transferred out of that realm into the realm of righteousness and life. Another kind of illustration or metaphor Paul has weaved through Romans 6 is that of slavery. And so the, the language throughout here would probably have been much more recognized by the, a first century Rome, Roman citizen than it would by us. But he talks about in, chat, in verse 13, he says, Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. So the picture Paul is painting here is that of presenting yourself to a slave master. And if you were a slave in the first century, uh, when you woke up in the morning, the first thing you would do would be to present yourself to your master. What can I do for you today? How can I serve you today? That would be the first, the first thing on your list, your first duty would be to present yourself to your master. Paul's telling us, you've been freed from this slave master. Why do you keep presenting yourself to him for service? Why do you keep showing up at his door, trying to serve him? You've been freed. And I just want you guys to kind of try to imagine. Um, I don't think any of us know what it would be like to be a slave, but imagine you're a slave. Imagine you're a slave to a a terrible person, a terrible slave master, um, someone who hates you, who, who has nothing but evil on his mind and on his heart, um, who treats you poorly, who abuses you, who abuses your family, um, who takes away your dignity. And imagine just the life that, that would be, a life of, of just bondage. And then imagine being freed from that by a gift. Someone frees you. You get to go to your own home and not be enslaved to this master anymore. Take your family and, and have your own home. And then imagine that next morning you might wake up as, as freed from this master, um, excited, the joy that you might feel from that. You might take a long, hot shower, you know, put some clothes on, go sit out on your porch, drink your coffee, watch the sunrise, just enjoy the morning. And then imagine, you know, after you drink your coffee, you walk back over to your old slave master's house and you knock on his door. 
uh, and you present yourself to him, how can I serve you today? I mean, how ridiculous is that idea? Paul's telling us that's exactly what we're doing. We're, we're presenting ourselves to our old slave master, even though we've been freed from him. But the, the kind of illustration of slavery doesn't stop there with, with freedom from our old slave master, but now we're, we're called to present ourselves to God, to serve a new master, which a lot of us don't like, right? We don't like the idea of any kind of slavery, even if it's to God. Right? We think of ourselves as free, as not subject to anything. But in reality, everybody worships something. Everyone religious, non-religious, the atheist, the Christian, the Buddhist, the Hindu, uh, no matter who you are, um, we all orient our lives around something. We all live for something. We all offer ourselves daily to something. We were created to worship. God created us as worshipers. And so not worshiping is just not an option for us. There's no one without a God. We all seek significance, security, comfort in something. Sometimes good things, sometimes bad things. A lot of us live for these, the God of family, right? Or children, work, power, success, money, um, leisure. A lot of people in Denver live for the God of leisure, the God of comfort. I live for the God of comfort. What Paul's trying to tell us here is that whatever it is that we serve, whatever we're living for, is actually a master. It actually becomes a God. And again, he's creating this dividing line that there are only two categories of people in the world. Those who submit to and worship God, the God of the universe, and those who are spiritual slaves to something else. And this idea goes all the way back to the Ten Commandments. Um, Martin Luther tells us that it's impossible to break commandments two through ten without first breaking the first commandment, which is to have no other gods before me. So this, this command, um, the first of the commandments, is to, to worship me alone, worship God, not me, worship God alone, um, and have no other gods before me. Martin Luther says, if you break commandments two through ten, so to not steal or covet or commit adultery or murder, he says you've already disobeyed the first one, you've already broken the first command, you've already begun to worship another god, you've already forsaken the god of the universe for something else. Another great um, historic theologian, Bob Dylan, has something to say about this as well. Um, no, he was not a great theologian, but a great songwriter. Um, later in his career, in the 70s, his 60s songs were much better, but in the 70s, he wrote a song called um, You Gotta Serve Somebody. And, you know, as far as the theology of this song, it's really solid. Uh, I'm just going to read you the first verse and chorus. Sing it. <laughs> James, would you come up here and sing this for me? Um, just kidding. So he says, You may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble. You might like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. And throughout this song, throughout the verses, he describes all different kinds of people. So rich, poor, powerful, weak, religious, moral, immoral. And he says you're all going to have to serve somebody. It might be God. It might be something else. It might be someone else but you're going to serve something. Paul here is calling us to serve God, to leave your old slave master behind and serve the only master who actually loves us, who seeks our good, who actually brings fulfillment, brings life, brings joy. If you look with me at verse 4 of chapter 6, Paul talks about our union with Christ and death 
And he says, through that union of, with Christ in death, um, or that we were united, I'm sorry, united with Christ in death, in order that we too might walk in newness of life. And in this context of chapter 6 here, <clears throat> Paul talk, isn't talking about some future newness, some future resurrection. He's saying that when you were baptized, when you first believed, um, you, were, you were resurrected with Jesus to live a new life. We, we have been made new people through our, through our union with Jesus. Past tense, not some future. And so our past is gone. Our old man is gone. The sin and the shame are done away with. Um, we've left this realm of sin and death, right? We've left, we've been freed from our old slave master. Now we're free to live lives, free from slavery to sin. So this idea to me is exciting, great, freedom from slavery to sin, I love it. Yet, what's the logical question again? If we've been freed from sin, why do we still sin? Why is there still so much junk in our lives? Um, Just like I mentioned before, the idol that I run to, the God that I worship is the God of comfort. I mean, everything I do... Is, is based on this. Not everything, but most things I do. If something is easier, if, if something brings me comfort, I'll do it. If it's, if it's more comfortable to sleep in an extra 15 minutes than it is to get up and spend time with God, I'll sleep in an extra 15 minutes. If it's more comfortable to pull out my computer and watch an episode of The Office before I go to bed instead of grabbing a book or maybe turning and talking to my wife or praying with my wife, I'll pull out my computer and I'll watch an episode of The Office. I mean, my sin is ever before me. Um, I've been a Christian for about 15 years, and it seems like the longer I'm a Christian, the more sin I see in my life. I don't think it's because I sin more. I think God is just revealing more and more of my junk. And so why is this? Why do we struggle with sin? Why is sin still in our lives if we're supposedly free from it? I want to answer that question by asking another question, which is, this true identity, this identity that we have in Jesus, that we, that's been established by Paul here, that we, we take on Jesus' righteousness, we take on his identity, how much of that has is, is already happened? How much is already and how much is kind of not yet? Right? How much do we have to wait on? Which parts of that have already happened? Which parts of that do we have to wait to experience? So I've got three things that I think are, are already in one way that's it's not yet. So one of the, the first already is that of justification that we have been justified. It's something that's happened. It can't be changed. It can't be approved upon. That Jesus' righteousness is mine today. His good is our good. His righteousness is our righteousness. His sacrifice is our sacrifice because of that union we have with him. And I love to think about the way that the Father looks upon Jesus, that he looks upon him with joy and delight, right, and perfect approval. Um, In the same way that I think all of us whether we, had, whether we grew up with good fathers or bad fathers, desire approval from our fathers. Jesus experiences perfect approval from his Father in heaven. I mean, the Father looks at Jesus and says, well done, good and faithful servant. And the beautiful truth is, is that as those who trust in Jesus and through that union with him, the Father looks on us in the exact same way, with perfect approval. He looks upon you, he looks upon me, if you've trusted in Jesus, and says, well done, good and faithful servant. And there's nothing we can do to, to improve upon that or to take that away. So our justification is already. The second already is that the power of my slave master, sin is severed 
that I may, I may stumble, I may go back and knock on his door tomorrow and try to present myself to him, um, but I don't have to. That power that he has over me, that dominion, he has no dominion over the believer. And so, verse 14, says, For sin will have no dominion over you. So we no longer live in that realm of sin and death, but of the realm of righteousness and life. The third thing that is already is that, <clears throat> that we're able to make progress in our faith, in our life, in our holiness. Um, that day by day, um, week by week, um, we're able to gain a measure of victory here and there. While sometimes it doesn't feel like it, that's a true reality that I think that we can experience today. We're freed to love God, to serve God, to pursue, pursue holiness because we're not weighed down with the, the guilt and shame um, of trying to earn our, our approval before God. That's already been given. That's already based on Jesus' righteousness. So we don't have to be crushed by that weight of trying to earn God's approval. That's been given. So now we're freed to press forward in the Christian life, to press forward towards holiness. And then the first thing, or the, the only one, that's not yet, is that of practical perfection. So we've established that, that positionally we are perfect in Jesus, yet practically, clearly our lives are not perfect. We are a bunch of messes. In Philippians, Paul says, Not that I have already obtained it, or am already perfect, but I press on or fight, so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. So in this life, we can't expect practical perfection, right? Yet we can strive towards holiness. We can strive to be more like Jesus day by day. In the last four verses that we're going to look at, 11 through 14, um, Paul leaved, leaves us with some, some practical implications. So Paul likes to do this in his, in his epistles, kind of gives us a theology up front, and then ends with some practical application, which makes my job a lot easier, kind of writes my sermon for me. And so I'm going to go through these three things that he gives us. The first one is, is really the most important, and it's to remember your position. It says in verse 11, So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So remember this true reality that we are united with him, that we take on Jesus' identity, that his righteousness is ours. Therefore, we're dead to sin and alive to God. So remember, it's the first one. This is, a, this is what the Israelites got in trouble uh, for not doing. Over and over again, they would forget what God had done, forget who they were, and they would stumble into sin. And so Paul is telling us to remember. Don't forget who you are. Don't forget what Jesus has already done for us. The second one is to fight sin. And don't submit, don't submit to your old slave master. So verses 12 and 13 uh, Paul tells us, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. So don't be passive. The Christian life is not a life of passivity. Now we can't try to work, often we try to work for our justification, um, which proves that we don't understand that, that that comes wholly through Jesus, but we can work for our sanctification. In other parts of scripture, Paul uses, when talking about the Christian life, terms of a soldier, an athlete, a farmer, a fighter. These things take hard work, right? These are very active professions. These aren't things you just sit back and let happen. He's telling us to work hard uh, and fight for our faith. My son, Ben, who's uh, three and a half, almost three and a half now, 
he loves to fight. He, uh, each day when I come home from work, typically the first thing he says to me is, Dad, let's fight. And so we go to the couch, and, and then he like runs and tackles me, and we punch each other in the ribs and choke each other and stuff. And, um, and he loves it. I mean, he gets so amped up by just fighting with his dad. And I love it that Ben is a fighter. Um, I, and I want this to, hopefully this won't just end, you know, with kind of the adolescent, you know, fighting with his friends type thing. And actually a couple weeks ago, it's a funny story, Megan was leaving the house and, um, and Ben was saying goodbye and said, bye mom, have a good day, don't hit your friends. So we're trying to teach Ben how to fight well and not hit the wrong people, you know, and he's repeating that back to us. Um, but I love it that my son is a fighter and I hope this, this continues on in his life, not just physically again, but I hope he, that he grows up to be a man who fights, fights for his faith, right? fights for holiness, fights for his friends, fights to believe the gospel, right? fights for his community, fights for the purposes of God, fights for his family. And this is a good thing. We're all called to fight. So whether you're tough like animal over here um, or whether you're you know, not physically very tough at all, we're called to fight. We're called to be fighters. And the Christian life is not a passive life. And this happens in community. Um, again, this is why we try to facilitate community here at Park Church. We believe that you can't do this on your own. That we fight sin, we pursue God in the context of community as we confess sin to one another. And we call out sin in one another. We remind one another of the gospel. We just spend time with each other. This is where, this is where the fight happens. So the third thing, the last thing that, that Paul leaves us with Verse 13, he tells us to submit to God. So recognizing that we're all daily submitting to something, we're all worshiping something, we're all um, kind of worshiping the God of something every day, choose to submit to the only one, the only thing, who again brings significance, who brings true security, true joy, comfort. Paul tells us to present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. So submit to God and recognize he is the only one worth submitting to. Let me pray for us. Lord, we need your help to do this. Lord, this is um, pursuing holiness, looking like Jesus is an impossible task, Lord, and we, um, yeah, we need you to remind us of our position, remind us of our union with Jesus. Lord, I pray your spirit would work in us to make us more like him. Lord, help us fight. Help us fight for our faith. Help us fight um, for our families. Help us fight for your glory in our lives and in this world. Lord, we're thankful for you. We're thankful for what you've done, for what you've accomplished. You've accomplished what we could never accomplish on our own. Lord, help us to remember that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.